you know, I really think that there's a, a big gold rush uh, type activity, bonanza, a lot of money to be made by space-based assets. A lot of the things that we depend upon on a daily basis are becoming more and more space-based capabilities, even the internet itself uh, soon. And because of that, because of this gold rush thing, I just see, you know, space commerce booming, people trying to launch as many satellites as possible, as quickly as possible. Because even though people can't lay claim to a specific part of space, uh, because it's a global commons kind of thing, people can, uh, by, by all intents and purposes, do squatters' rights. And, uh, you know, once you occupy an orbital region and you, and you populate it with a lot, of, a lot of stuff, it's not easy for other people to, to share that space with you. I don't know about you, but I do all my best work at coffee shops. And that's why I'm excited to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, TunnelBear. If you want to protect your data while you're on public Wi-Fi, you don't want people stealing your passwords, your credit card information, or let them get into your business's back end, then check out TunnelBear. TunnelBear.com slash disruptors to support the show, secure your work on the go, and keep your team protected so they can be productive and safe anywhere they decide. And unlike other VPNs, expensing's easy. There's no licenses to juggle, no one-off invoices to manage. It's just fast, easy, simple. Stream movies from any country, regardless of what Netflix says. Run your business from Starbucks without worrying about hackers. And of course, all at fast speeds. Just visit tunnelbear.com disruptors. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S. Tunnelbear.com disruptors. For more details and to secure that Starbucks work that you know you're doing. You probably know I'm big on biohacking and trying to make myself the best I can be. That's why I'm excited about what the guys at Neurohacker Collective and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was previously on the podcast, are doing. They're some of the smartest biohackers on the planet, and their Qualia line of brain-enhancing nootropics make it obvious why. You guys can get 15% off any order, or with a subscription, 50% off and 15% off every future order by going to disruptors.fm slash qualia, that's Q-U-A-L-I-A, and using coupon code disruptors at disruptors we're big on health and biotech for a reason it amplifies everything disruptors.fm slash qualia use coupon code disruptors want to build a business that changes the world for the better and make serious money in the process i believe in the ability of entrepreneurs and innovators to change the world for the better and that's why i built this podcast i've put together a free guide for founders fighting to change the world and create long-term sustainable profitable businesses you can grab that for free at mattward.io slash mission. If you're building a business designed to leave an impact on the world, it pays to be prepared. And if you want to go further faster, I also work one-on-one with impact-oriented founders and CEOs looking to 10x results without working harder. You can do it. It comes down to efficiency, mindset, and much more. You can find out more and apply at mattward.io slash coaching. And now let's get on with this awesome episode. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. It isn't rocket science. Well, today, actually, it is. We've got Moriba Ja on the program. He's a space scientist, aerospace engineer, and associate professor at the University of Texas. He previously worked as a spacecraft navigator 
at NASA GPL on several of their Mars missions. In addition to being a TED Fellow, he's served on numerous international committees on the future and safety of space. He also gave a really incredible TED Talk about cleaning up the space junk, so to speak, and what we all need to know about what's out there and what's around us. In today's episode, we discuss the problem of space junk and how to deal with it, what everyone needs to know about geoengineering, how space mining could ruin Earth industries, Moriba's thoughts on the anti-science movement and what we can do to change education going forward, how to deal with the biggest problems nobody knows about, how space affects climate change and vice versa, and why the space gold rush will be a collective commons nightmare. This one's a fun one, especially if you go outside at night, look up into the stars and wonder what's out there. Without further ado, I give you Moriba Ja. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So I saw somewhere that you were referenced as the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher for space. <laughs> There's got to be a story. Yeah, so basically what's that, you know, what, what that's all about is that one of the things that I'm trying to do here at uh, UT Austin is have a transdisciplinary education and research program where people in uh, law school, uh, we have a, a Lyndon B. Johnson, uh, you know, public uh, public affairs and, and uh, government uh, aspect on campus. We have uh, Strauss security uh, and, and law, you know, aerospace engineering. So what I want is for all these folks to be able to get their own degrees, but have some educational program where all of us take like the dark arts class together. And, and that way, you know, the next person that is working on Capitol Hill knows what a telescope looks like. The next astronomer that cares about space debris knows how difficult it is to achieve consensus, to get policy out the door, and that sort of thing. Basically, people are way too specific, and we're becoming idiot savants, so to speak, so it's hard to survive. Exactly. That's right. How do we solve that? That's not at all where we're going to go with the interview. But how do we how do we solve that as somebody who is working at universities, where we really have this one-track type system for every student? So one of the things that some universities are really looking into are, you know, these sort of uh, portfolio educational programs. So here at UT, they have these things called graduate portfolios, where a, a group of faculty of different departments and schools and colleges can say, yeah, uh, we're going to teach these classes. And we're going to this is how we're going to admit students into this program. And they'll get some annotation on their uh, degree that says they did a graduate portfolio in, you know, space safety, security and sustainability, for instance. And at least that gets people of all these different you know, degree programs to sit together and take some common common classes. And the space deal is big for you. When did when did space become your driving force? I think uh, the seed of that really germinated when I was in active duty as an enlisted uh, enlisted person in Montana guarding uh, nu- nuclear missiles at Malmstrom Air Force Base. And one of the things that they say about Montana is that it's big sky country. Uh, that's for sure. Because uh, there was a lot of sky, and during my night shifts, uh, sometimes I, I'd, I'd look above and I'd see these dots of light just going across the sky, and quite a few of them. And you know, they weren't shoot, shooting stars, they weren't you know airplanes. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me: wow, these things are actual like human-made satellites orbiting the Earth. And I think that there was a kind of a, a moment of amazement and kind of a shift in me. And uh, that that definitely said, hey, I, I'd be really cool if I did something related to this. But you were super disappointed initially when you found out they weren't UFOs, right? Exactly. It's, um, it's interesting. Looking up is always interesting and 
pretty much universal way to find some type of meaning. Is that is that kind of what your work has been about for you? Pretty much. And and what does looking up tell us about, you know, our home? What does looking up uh, tell us about, you know, ourselves and almost looking at how we behave in the skies, using that as a mirror to, to know ourselves a little bit better and do a better job here on the ground in really achieving sustainability and, and uh, you know, peace and all these things. In a, in a creepy way, a lot of it is a mirror. A lot of the satellites are looking down. What are your What are your thoughts on the state of the the satellite industry today? Where we are, where we're headed? You know, I really think that there's a a big gold rush uh, type activity bonanza. A lot of money to be made by space based assets. A lot of the things that we depend upon on a daily basis are becoming more and more space based capabilities. Even the internet itself uh, soon and. Because of that, because of this gold rush thing, I just see, you know, space commerce booming. People trying to launch as many satellites as possible, as quickly as possible. Because even though people can't lay claim to a specific part of space, uh, because it's a global commons kind of thing, people can, uh, by, by all intents and purposes, do squatters' rights. And, uh, you know, once you occupy an orbital region and you, and you populate it with a lot, of, a lot of stuff, it's not easy for other people to to share that space with you. Do we need to have parking tickets? Do we need to have parking lots that you can rent out? How do we deal with something like that? Because otherwise it becomes yeah. a situation where it's like, we all kind of own the forest, so let's go cut them all down and burn all the trees. Yeah, so we definitely face a tragedy of the commons in space. I think the first thing that needs to happen is for the global community to accept that near-Earth space is a finite resource. Uh, we, we only put objects in, in certain you know, space highways and that we're putting more stuff there and most of the stuff on the highways doesn't come back. So so accept, yep, it's a finite resource. And then once we accept it's a finite resource, then we can make these analogies with this kind of tragedy of the commons and say, it's a resource that is in need of environmental protection. So extend current environmental protection narratives to near-Earth space. And then once we can do that, then we can start wrapping kind of sensible norms of behavior, you know, values, ethics uh, with with best practices to really ensure that sort of uh, sustainability. I think that there needs to be accountability. So there needs to be three things. There needs to be transparency, accountability, and predictability. And uh, that's part of what we're trying to work uh, here in the research program at UT. I mean, it could even be like a city system of just renting a parking spot on the side of a road. You put money in, you get your slotted time, the money's used to maintain the roads, etc. Well, um, the whole parking thing, uh, it's it, it's not a one-to-one uh, analogy given the physics because things are just, you know, always in motion kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, basically, you know, if we could have environmental protection extended to near, near a space and we could have a way to quantify the burden of any given object, like one of the things we're developing is uh, a space traffic footprint, which is a kind of a carbon footprint analog and assign that to every object in space. Then, it, then it's much more easy uh, to, you know, it's easier to, to then, you know, tax people or, or, or any number of things. And then at the same time, we've pretty much failed miserably with Paris Accords, Kyoto, um, Kyoto Principle, essentially carbon tax. People don't like to penalize themselves. How do we? How do we do it? So I think instead of doing penalties, I think what we try to do is incentivize. You know, what kind of things can we put in place to to incentivize people to behave this way? you know, credits that we could provide, you know, cheaper access, maybe it's like, oh, you did all these things, then the cost of this may be reduced for you, or, you know, uh, uh, smaller fees, take the usual fees, but give discounts. So I think that's probably a better way is incentivize versus penalize. 
So then at that, least at, at least at first. So that would be something like government subsidizing launches or something. It could be. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting problem that not a lot of people are talking about. How close are we to a, a Kessler syndrome scenario? And ref, uh, explain for the listeners what that is. Yeah. So this idea of Kessler syndrome was something proposed by Don Kessler, in which the hypothesis was, you know, there are on orbit processes and events that further generate, you know, resident space objects. And in a more pragmatic way, what I'm saying is that if you don't do anything, things will collide with each other or things will break up on their own or they will explode. And anytime these events happen, they create more things. And uh, Don Kessler said that at some point, the population will be self-growing even if you don't launch anything else. So some people believe we've already passed that point. I'm not a firm believer in the Kessler syndrome to begin with. I think that sometimes things get small enough to where the the ecosystem achieves some level of equilibrium. So and 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 at some point these these uh, you know collisions between things uh, cease to be you know harmful or or something that could be you know detrimental. So yeah. Interesting. Where do where do space scientists stand on that? I'd never heard that proposed before, but it certainly is a much more hopeful outlook. I think there's mixed feelings about the whole Kessler syndrome. I think most people that are vocal uh, say that they believe in it. And then I may, maybe, uh, you know, some folks that are less vocal about it, like myself, yeah, don't subscribe to it too much. I mean, in theory, if you did have a Kessler type situation, could you also just put up a space airbag, so to speak, and catch catch and release everything? Well, the thing is, if you came up with something like that or like a Nerf ball or whatever, you wouldn't be able to discriminate things that work from things that are junk. You'd have, so to, take, it, you'd have to take it all down. That's right. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, where do you see us headed when it comes to space? I know your one of your big initiatives was crowdsourced space monitoring, and yet we also see a lot more happening on the private side of things as public governments run away from spending money in space. So, 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 like, where do I see the crowdsource thing going, or where do where do you see the future of space going? Is it private? Is it a is it a combination of crowdsourced? Where do governments play a role? Just just spitball and where you see us headed along. I think it's probably very similar to maritime. You know, um, you have private, uh, you know, private activity on the seas. You have government activity. You have commercial activity. So it's just another. It's just an extension of, of, of human activity. I think space is going to become that. It's going to become kind of, kind of normal, commonplace for us to, to live or do work in the space domain. Again, just like any other domain, maritime, you know, land, air, sea kind of thing. What do you think about space piracy? It's pretty easy to, I mean, in the sea, it's almost impossible to disappear unless you've got that 20,000 leagues under the sea type deal. But in space, you can kind of disappear whatever you want to disappear to. It's hard. It's also hard to intercept people. Yeah, I would say that space piracy is probably a thing. It's, uh, I can guarantee that it's happened and it's going to happen more frequently in the absence of, you know, kind of ubiquitous monitoring of, of what's going on uh, on orbit. What applications have you most excited in terms of economic and then human impact of what we're doing right now and then future space exploration, asteroid mining, etc.? So to me, being able to use satellites to um, connect space weather, space environment phenomena with geophysical processes like, you know, earth, earth, you know, uh, hurricanes, earthquakes, uh, that sort of stuff, kind of doing a multi, multi-domain, um, you know, fusion to try to really understand causal relationships between stuff so that you can build models that help you better predict what's going to happen. And, and, and you have these models and, you know, they're repeatable and that sort of stuff. 
I think I think that's what has me most excited. Hopefully, not too late to do something about it. You know, like with climate change and that sort of stuff. But um, basically, use space-based technology to no kidding uh, improve the lives of of humans and and animals and all life in general uh, on the planet, and and actually achieve sustainability. So that's that's my most exciting kind of uh, use of space, as opposed to most people that you know want to leave and go someplace else. But uh, at the same time, you know, the earth is, you know, finite amount of lands and water and resources and the number of humans is not decreasing and it hasn't re- reached stability either. So to me, that says we need to figure out how we can survive as a species on places other than earth. So that, that nut needs to get cracked. And um, so, yeah, so, so there's a role for human exploration as well, uh, if for no other reason than the eventual sur- sur- survival of our species. Do you think that will be on other planets or that'll be in space station type deals? You know, um, I don't have a strong feeling. I, what, what, what I can say is this. Um, if it happens in space station type deals, we need to figure out how to provide adequate resistant forces uh, for our bodies. So, um, you know, as, as things are in orbit, everything's in a state of free fall and weightlessness. And we know that weightlessness is detrimental to our bodies because we're used to fighting the resistance of, of the ground. And I purposely say, you know, there's lots of gravity on orbit. You know, anybody that says this zero gravity stuff is just, it's ridiculous. It's, it's completely inaccurate. But we need resistant forces. And so that's the thing that planetary bodies can provide is that fight against the local acceleration, you know, with the ground. So, so we definitely need that if we're going to survive. We can't survive in weightlessness for sure. Not, not long term. I know sci-fi solves it generally with rotational habitats. Right. But, you know, that's now moving parts and mechanisms and it complicates stuff. And what kind of redundancy do you put in to make sure that the thing never fails? And where does the energy come from? And that's just another headache that you need to deal with. Do you get called in for a private industry a lot to consult? I do get called in uh, to consult quite a bit. Yeah. What's it like playing that because you're in you're in the academic space and yet the space is booming and it's the wild west so to speak like you said what it is what is it like being in that strange balancing position it's exactly where i wanted to be i've uh, you know spent you know 7 years working for nasa at the jet propulsion lab and another 10 years as a civil servant in the air force research lab i did private industry for a little bit so i've done a little bit of of many things and now i'm in academia and um i've been resistant to just going and working for a company because I want to be at that intersection. I want to be a resource uh, to people and to different communities. And um, yeah, there there have been lucrative opportunities that I've said no to to be in this space. And yet the government cut NASA's funding. We see so many mo- so much money going to private industry, and Trump wants his space force. How do we deal with building out the the government's role in a in a long term space future, not just for the U.S. but worldwide? I think. You know, one of the things that that uh, folks like myself can do is just show people what art of the possible looks like, and 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 show a path to move things from art of the possible to state of practice. And I think the the major role of government is to retire risk, and then show the government that it you know that it actually is possible to do that risk retirement. Because once risk is retired, then 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 it makes sense to commercialize and have government be very good at just handing things off. Uh, to private industry uh, when that risk has been retired. So basically, the government does the the lean startup type testing, although... Yeah, exactly. That's the way it should be, man, for sure. And then private industry is what scales it up. Yep. What do you think in terms of asteroid mining? I know that's something that is 
pretty hot these days. It, we've had a couple of failures, some, some larger failures as well. But in terms of getting resources, would you bring them back to Earth or would you try to build out the infrastructure for space to avoid the, the gravity issue? So I think the bringing it back to Earth uh, isn't the worst idea as long as you had a lot of different you know, fail safes and that sort of thing. I think to me, the, the larger worry is depending on the type of resources that you'd be mining, what does that do to the global economy? You know, all of a sudden, if you find something that's made out of platinum, what does that do to the price of platinum kind of stuff? Like how does, what kind of disruption does that do to a global market? And I think we should think extremely carefully about that because there could be, you know, very detrimental consequences as a result of doing that, you know, without, without having that, you know, without being mindful mindful about that. There definitely could be, but at the same time, you also don't want to be the, the South African diamond company that's hiding the diamonds to keep the prices high. Right. It's a it's a tricky balance. It is. Especially because we don't know what we'll find. Exactly. What do you think in terms of the public's perception of space and science? We have satellites looking down on the Earth taking pictures, and we have people believe that the Earth is flat. Yeah, so <laughs> that is a very, very large dynamic range of, of beliefs and to me, it's um, it's mesmerizing to think that we do have folks that that are on both sides of that spectrum, right? So I think in general we still idolize space. It's still a place that's far away, that's unreachable. When we look at paintings and drawings, especially those that are of a religious nature, it's it's where deities reside, right? And it's not it's not a place for humans. So I think that that's built in. That's like an ingrained kind of thing that, um, you know, as as a collective species, we just need to be open to allowing beliefs to change as as needed. And one of the things that, again, that I want to do is I want to make space less of this place for elitist to, to, to thrive, le- less of this faraway place that is inaccessible and more of just an extension of human activity. You know, we don't, we don't, Uh, idolize people that go on planes or boats or trains. So we shouldn't idolize people that go up on rockets. Like we should, we should as quickly as possible move away from that idolization and just normalize it and just make it kind of a commonplace sort of thing. And also when we talk to the, you know, public, not try to dumb things down for people. Like I'm tired of people telling me, oh, you know, you just need to dumb it down so people can understand. I actually believe people can understand a lot. I mean, I'm a person, you're a person to say that, uh, you know, we have people that whose IQ is, is so far and above that, you know, these other people, the lay people, they, they won't get it. I just think we just need to find the proper words and, and, and we can we can find ways to communicate effectively without dumbing things down. Like the, the zero gravity thing that I brought up earlier. This is something that NASA has been telling people and school kids for such a long time, man. I even, I've even heard NASA people that actually believe this stuff, which to me is like completely ludicrous, you know. And, uh, you know, the thing is, it's like if, if you take a ball with a string and you're, you're spinning the ball, right? Th- that ball goes around in the circle. Gravity is that string. The fact, you know, if there was no gravity, it's like snip it off with some scissors. What happens to the ball? It goes flying away. And so when, ki- when I talk to school kids and the school kids are like, ah, oh, you know, astronauts float in the space station because there's no gravity. It's very hard for them to understand physics in other ways because that is a fundamentally flawed uh, way to think about it. But as soon as I tell a group of school kids, hey, it's really free fall. Well, what do you mean by that? Ah, imagine if we were all in this room and we we're at the edge of a cliff and you just nudge the room right off the edge of the cliff and everything, the room and everything inside it is just falling, but never hits the ground. It's like this bottomless kind of cliff. What do you think would happen? Ah, 
things would start to look like they're floating and blah, blah, blah. I said, exactly. And that's exactly what astronauts are experiencing is this constant state of free fall. Basically, they're constantly falling towards the earth, but they're moving so fast uh, horizontally that they're always missing. They're always missing. And, And to see children, their eyes light up and they have this aha moment. And all of a sudden they're able to grasp other ideas about physics because they have the right, that's, that's the right way to think about it. So I think, you know, don't dumb things down. Trust that people are smart enough to get it. Just find a way to communicate effectively, normalize the domain so that it's not this kind of, you know, uh, only rock stars and, and, and elitists and, and that stuff are able to participate in that domain. Making a podcast sustainable is hard. That's why I'm pumped to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Podcorn, a marketplace, literally, for podcast advertising, a place that makes it transparent and easy. We're using Podcorn to get sponsors for the disruptors. And you know what? We can do it without having expensive middlemen charging high fees, which makes it easier for me and podcasters everywhere to make their production sustainable, keep reaching awesome listeners like you guys, and support products and businesses that we like, love, and enjoy. If you run a podcast or you're interested in advertising on podcasts, hint, hint, it's probably one of the highest performing mediums out there, go to podcorn.com. That's P-O-D-C-O-R-N.com. Check them out if you're running a podcast or if you just want to run more successful, profitable advertising. And if you're interested in the disruptors, you run a business that you think would be a great fit for us and our audience, something we could get behind, sponsors at disruptors.fm. Shoot us an email. We look forward to hearing from you and maybe working together. But now... Let's get on with the program. What do you think about the Elon Musk-Jeff Bezos pissing contest to see who can win space or who can win the race? They seem to have a very much, it's very much a billionaire-centric game right now. (laughs) Um, So I think that in general, the existence of these folks uh, has been of a positive nature for the community because it's made space more accessible. It's made people believe more that they can be a part of it. So that's been the positive thing. There have been some negatives uh, in the sense that, you know, uh, in general, if it's legal, then it's okay to do it without deep thought about how this affects the rest of humanity and that sort of thing. So I really get, I understand the whole try to be an inspiration of people, make them believe like, I like that part. I like that technology has been a disruptor and has forced governments to, you know, yeah, get get a bit shaken out of some of the lethargy and apathy that 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 they've experienced over a long time in space. But uh, I, I, go, I go back to this concept called traditional ecological knowledge, right? It's basically some indigenous people of the planet for thousands of years, like Inuit and Aborigines and other, they have had to strike a balance with their ecosystem to be able to survive. And there are some tenets of traditional ecological knowledge that I think we should apply to space, like mutual respect for each other. Like before, before you put up a Tesla, think about what people that don't have Teslas would think about seeing a Tesla in space. You know, just uh, things that say, you know, this domain isn't just about being able to do whatever I want, but there's a humanity that I have to respect in, in my actions and that sort of thing. But let's play the devil's advocate card of what about just the importance of getting people more interested in space? Right now, you said you don't want astronauts to be celebrities, but we've got basketball players as celebrities. Would you rather have kids aspiring to be a basketball player or an astronaut? I'd love people to aspire to be even a plumber if need be. You know, it's like, um, I just think that in general, the sensationalization of any given thing, uh, skewing it kind of thing is just not, it's not positive. And uh, it sets up kind of long-term ingrained biases that are just very difficult for us to shake out of uh, in the future. 
I would agree. I would also say that is part of the reason the anti-science movement is so effective is because a lot of scientists hold similar beliefs. So we have a lot less marketing or exposure, so to speak, of science popularization. Un- understood. I um, I guess I don't have what the right answer is. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. So you, you talked about the cost coming down and the abilities of people to do things, possibly terrible things which kind of brings up geoengineering. We brought we talked about climate change. What do you think about some of the proposals people are talking about spraying sulfur and otherwise into the atmosphere to slow global warming? Um <laughs> I think that we don't have enough data to really know what that is going to end up uh long term, and so I think it's arrogance for people to think that they understand these processes, natural processes and the impact of their actions to the extent that they could predict what these effects could be like over centuries and millennia, I think is, compl- is it's, yeah, it's ludicrous. Like it, it, it uh, it's a horrible, it's a horrible mentality because it's just, it's just not true. Man, we can't even predict the weather in a city, you know, over a couple of days, let alone, you know, putting stuff in the atmosphere and saying, yeah, this is the way it's going to behave a hundred or a thousand years from now. I would agree. I would say this, the weather thing, not as relevant because it's the averages, but the geoengineering thing is, it's terrifying because any billionaire is going to be able to do this. And what happens once we start doing it? If we decide, A, it's not working, or for some reason it's going to stop, or it does stop, or someone says, oh, we can hold you hostage now. I need a, I need a billion dollars a day, or I'm just going to yada, yada, yada. There's just so right. many ways it could go wrong outside of the ways that we don't even know that we don't know. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Is there any way that we can prevent against that? Some type of treaty? If someone tries to do it, we just shoot them down? Yeah, so I'll, I'll probably never say yes to that. But um, um, certainly, you know, back to this idea of traditional ecological knowledge, one of the tenets of that is, you know, taking taking people's perspectives uh, into account prior prior to ma- making any, any decisions and, and basically using empirical uh, uh, data to understand you know, relationships between things and making, you know, informed decisions, not, not making assumptions to fill in the gaps of incomplete data. Cause whenever we, we whenever we extrapolate that way, typically it, it doesn't end up so well. So, um, so yeah. You're basically talking about dynamic or systems type thinking systems. That's type right. Processes. We don't yeah. have, a, we don't have a lot of that in school. And I think that that's one of the most important things we're going to need going forward. I agree. If you could kill, if you had to kill one school subject in high school and replace it with something else, what would it be and why? Huh, that's a really, really tough question. Um, if I had to, if if I had to get rid of any given subject in school, it would probably be history. Uh, the reason I would get rid of it is because it's a biased account. Like if history as taught today would actually be a combination of of opinions of a given event or a process where you get different perspectives. I think that could be actually worthwhile. But, uh, you know, as some people say, you know, history books get get written by the people who won sort of thing. And uh, it's just a very biased lens to look at how things have happened. And uh, and I think that that actually can be detrimental long term to the way we think about uh, things for sure. I think it can be. But while history doesn't repeat itself, it often rhymes. So it's it's good to know what to look for as well. I would probably try to combine classes instead, looking at ways. Well, it, it's silly to have separate subjects when English could also be sci-fi class, could also be history class, because you know what? You're reading things in history. 
There, there's just a lot of ways I think that we could we could refine the system. Any, sure. Any thoughts as a college educator? I really enjoy transdisciplinarity, and so working on projects that uh, you know the answer only comes from the fusion of of many disciplines, like what I'm doing now with space safety, uh, security, and sustainability. Uh, I think that's definitely a way of the future. It definitely is a way of the future, and yet it's something that's hard to get people on board for today. Like you were saying, and like you, you see with tragedy of the commons. A lot of times people don't act until they have to react. Is, right. is, is there any way that we can prevent that going forward with space? Man, um, well, that's that's one of the things that I'm trying to do is trying to raise awareness and get people to take some action in protecting the space environment before, you know, a, a really uh, cataclysmic event actually happens in that domain. We'll see. See, this is where I think sensationalism could be valuable. Even like, let's say you partner with Elon Musk, he creates a fake 3D video of a Tesla going and running through the streets, crashing into cars and killing tons of people. And then at the end, by the way, this would be space if we didn't clean it up or something like that. I don't know how else you can really get people to have that type of visceral reaction that's needed. Yeah, but I've also seen where sensationalism is the culprit of people just becoming non-believers and saying fake this fake that fake the other and so I'm I have a huge inertia to to using that as a mechanism to get my message across to people. You talked about space changing beliefs especially religious beliefs. Do you believe there's intelligent life out there? The answer is absolutely. If we consider ourselves intelligent then I don't see any other way that that there couldn't be because so far in my own scientific pursuits I've never seen uh, nature do one-offs. So I've seen nature do things that are repeatable in other places, and so um, to think that uh, to think that we resulted as this miraculous kind of uh, you know sp- you know spoof kind of thing, yeah, I find that very difficult to accept. What do you think would happen if we had contact in some way? I mean, everything about us would change, right? I mean, uh, our whole perspectives about what our role is in the universe and uh, understanding more about you know what we can do, where we came from, like all these things would, would, would change. And, and maybe, maybe it would be a way to achieve greater harmony. It, it, would, it would be very difficult for some to accept, right? They might feel that they're being purposely tricked. I mean, if people still believe the earth is flat, some people would deny the existence of these other beings and say they're just, who knows, in disguise, you know, demons or, or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, it, it would be super interesting. It could definitely be unifying, especially if it was a us against them mentality, which a lot of times is very helpful, hence wars. But it's, uh, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to really predict what would happen. Yeah, I don't know that I'll ever say that a war is a helpful thing. But but yeah, or it's, I, or, or it's like nine eleven. No one was friendlier in New York City other than after nine eleven. That was the most unified time there's ever been because everyone went through a tragedy. Unfortunately, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's um. Yeah, I, I could see I could see something similar being along those lines. Then again, if we ever encountered another species and they came here, obviously our technology wouldn't stand a chance. So all the sci-fi movies are usually kind of kind of kind of bogus on that regard. How do you think when you watch? Speaking of when you watch movies, when you read books, etc., when the science isn't quite right, does that just does that bother you? Do you dis, dis, suspend disbelief? How does he, how do you deal with that as a science guy? So to me, it needs to be like fully bogus or fully realistic. Yeah, I don't like the in-between stuff. So, you know, something like Star Wars, I can totally get into it and I love it because it is kind of fully bogus. But then some other movies where they try to make it pseudo-realistic, that, that's where it bugs me. Like movies like Gravity or whatever. Like, I don't like that. I can I can definitely relate to that. You've got to 
you got to go one way or the other with that. When, yeah. did, when did you know that you were going to be a scientist? Well, I'd probably say ever since I actually felt a genuine curiosity to understand stuff around me and I would find ways to, to test test those things and test beliefs and that sort of thing. I think at that point, I didn't fully know it, but that's really when I started becoming a scientist. And then you progressed from there. What was it like working at NASA and also being a TED fellow, being around some of the smartest folks in the world? Yeah. So this belief, uh, working at JPL, it took me several years to even feel like I was worthy to be working you know, alongside some of these people whose papers I had read as a student and that sort of thing. The TED fellow experience was uh, uniquely one of the most amazing experiences I've had professionally in that, um, like all these other 19 people, we, you know, we had a common uh, unifying element, which was we all seemed to be motivated by compassion and, and wanting to do something of positive impact for humanity. And we all had a thing that we could point to, you know, my thing is space traffic, you know, Avon's thing is women in the police force. And Every all of us had a thing that we were doing, something that we could point to. A purpose. And yeah, and that was just so powerful, man. And I think that's really the most awesome part of the TED Fellowship, to be honest. I feel like so many people don't have a purpose or have lost their purpose. And that's a big portion of the problem with the world. How do we fix that? <laughs> I wish I had a meaningful answer to give to you for that. I don't know. What do you think about the the public research partnership that goes on with the military and science? I think it could be improved. I think there's a lot of confirmation bias built into a lot of this stuff. And I don't see enough, you know. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that, you know, the government will say, I have this problem. And people will say, I have this shiny object that'll solve it. But, oh, how do you know it solves it? Well, because I tested it with this, that, and the other. Well, if you use this other, you know, data, how does it perform? Well, that's not fair because, you know, I didn't develop it with that. And so there's no standard like benchmark data sets that are transparent. There's no group of people that can independently provide, you know, peer review and scrutiny of different solutions and that sort of stuff. So to me, that's like, that's the biggest Achilles heel of, of these things is, is the absence of that. That's the same thing with social media and news. It's what news is real. It, it's hard when, when it comes to data, especially when it depends on who's funding it, depends on how you looked at it, the data sometimes that's right. changes. That's right. I feel like that's a problem with, with science as a whole, in that that's why so many people disbelieve it, is scientists aren't willing to say this is true. They're willing to say this isn't false. Can we fix, can we fix that somehow in terms of public perception? Because charlatans are willing to say anything that's true. Yeah, so I think the best way to answer that is in a quote from uh, Bertrand Russell. And Bertrand Russell's quote uh, that to me addresses this is, the problem with the world is that the stupid are cocksure and the intelligent are full of doubt. I like it. That's a, that's a solid one. What technology or trend are you most excited about outside of the stuff we've talked about so far? To me, it's big data science and analytics, man. It's um, what can we learn by aggregating and, and properly curating uh, large quantities of disparate sources of information? You know, what's discoverable in that set? To me, that's the most fascinating kind of thing moving out into the future. And yet it's a double-edged sword. I've heard you talk about the dangers of monitoring, especially with all the satellites that are going up, the increased resolution, facial recognition. Yeah, it is a double-edged sword. That's right. Are we moving towards a privacy-free world? You know, I, I just don't see any way around it. I think I think that it's something that can't be uh, fully protected. And, um, you know, there's, interestingly enough, you know, some people say, well, how do I, you know, if if myself and my research group, if we are really like, you know, world-class kind of stuff. Like, how do we, how do you ensure that you're like 
leading edge. Some people would say you remain insular and you don't share anything, which is a lot of governments and that sort of stuff. And other people would say you put everything out there and you just run much more, you outpace you know, everything else. You saturate the system with, with everything that you're doing. And um, that's, that's my approach. My approach is not hiding stuff. It's putting everything out there and saturating the system with it. So to me, that's the way I approach this whole privacy stuff is that I just put everything about me out there. It's like, and the system can either keep up or not. Isn't that, not to be rude, but isn't that a little bit of a privileged position where some people can't do that? I won't say no. Yeah, it's a, it's a really hard balance to strike because we are moving in a direction which feels like a slippery slope we can't stop. Understood. Yeah, IoT, AI, sensors, satellites. I've got my camera right here. Zuckerberg's watching. He probably gets to right. see the other webcam that I've got going on. It's uh, but the, I think I think the major, I think the biggest problem is the lack of transparency and the lack of privacy. So so when there's lack of transparency and lack of privacy, that's where the problem is. But if there's if there's lack of privacy with full transparency, then people can see how other people are using that lack of privacy for their own purposes, and we can call each other out, and we can kind of self-police ourselves as a community. But the thing is, that's not the case. It's like there's lack of privacy. There's lack of privacy and lack of transparency. And the lack of transparency is what makes it uh, dangerous. And on top of that, lack of repercussions, Facebook. Exactly. These are our terms. Oh, by the way, we changed all of our terms. Sorry. Right. So I think the lack of transparency is exactly what results uh, in the the lack of consequences. But even still, now we're starting to have more and more transparency into this lack of privacy. And we don't see people's priorities or actions really changing much. I think there's going to be a tipping point with people just becoming very allergic to a lack of consequences. And when you can have a sufficiently large and and, con- and convincible body of evidence of causality between this person's privacy was completely like out there and you completely took advantage of it in this way, that or the other, and it resulted in this thing with, to the detriment of the person. When that's clear cut and there's only one hypothesis that makes that fits that, then I think it's easy. It's easier to enforce and, and come up with consequences. I would definitely agree with that. When you're when your neighbor gets in the car crash, you think a lot harder about having the seatbelt on. Yep. And- yeah, a lot of times it does take those type of those type of actions. I got one last question for you, Moriba, and yeah. that before you tell people where to find you and all the good stuff. And that's if you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, something like that. It can be anything. What would it be? In I would probably want people to walk away with uh, consider that near Earth space is a finite resource that is in need of environmental protection, and we should look towards uh, groups of people on the planet that have found a way to achieve balance with their uh, environment over thousands of years, and we should use that as 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 kind of a recipe of of how to apply that uh, in space. Okay, I have a follow up question on that. What got you? Because you've brought it up a couple of times now. What made that so apparent for you? The importance of not just ecological sustainability, but looking at it from a an ancient or a a wise in the in the world in the environment type sense. So that's the question that you didn't ask me. So, so yeah, that, I'm glad that you asked it. A couple of years ago, I went to Alaska and I took my son Denali with me so he could see where his name came from. And, you know, I, I've lived in Hawaii uh, on Maui for, for a number of years. So I've seen the disparity between Native Hawaiians and, and the rest of us kind of thing and, and how it's affected their lives. Uh, and, and actually the environment with landfills and that sort of stuff on Maui. You know, you go to Australia, you see how, uh, uh, Aborigines have been displaced and that sort of stuff, uh, and the impact to their environment as well. Went to Alaska, saw that firsthand as well, uh, Pacific Northwest, 
And interestingly enough, I felt suddenly kind of enveloped by a presence. And it was like a, a, a feeling, a presence that, that felt very old to me. And uh, like in my mind's eye, I saw all these things kind of flashing. And what I felt within me was there are groups of people on the planet that have for thousands of years, again, been able to achieve sustainability and balance and humanity as a whole has lost its balance uh, with life. And, you know, would I be would I be willing to do anything in my capacity to try to rekindle that to try to recover that and, and make that a foundational message uh, in my work? And my answer is yes. And so that's that's exactly what I've done. I think that's really cool. And it's interesting that you're able to have both perspectives. Usually people go one way or the other. And usually the values when you combine both. Absolutely. Moriba, thanks for coming today. Where's the best place for people to find you and learn more about the work? Yeah, so um, basically, I think if you just Google my first name, uh, you know, Moriba, Jaw, and, and, and Space Junk, you'll find so much on me online. Uh, you'll make your way there. So the benefits of having an epic, unique name. There you go. Moriba, thanks for coming. And thanks for tuning in, guys. Thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers. And until next time, guys, look up, see what you see, and then build something bigger because of it. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoy this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.